Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red, joined as always by Nizar Hassan. Nizar, how are you doing? It's good. I'm good. Uh, it's good to be back. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry to everybody for our uh, extended absence, uh, but we are back in the saddle now. Um, and this is actually a very special episode that we have because this is, we realize, the Lebanese Politics Podcast. But this week, we've got a guest uh, and we're going to be talking about Palestine. Yeah, I mean, there's no reason to to make any excuses or explain why we want to talk about Palestine because it's very important not only for uh, Lebanon but for the whole region and maybe the whole world as a as a as a conflict, especially what was happening in the last few weeks. And we're very happy to have with us uh, Laurel Bust, uh, who's a Palestinian journalist and organizer in diaspora in Washington D.C. Uh, Laura, can you tell us about yourself? Of course, thank you so much, Nizad and Ben, for having me. Um, so I work at the Institute for Palestine Studies in DC. We have an office in Beirut and Ramallah as well. And I organize with the Palestinian youth movement uh, in DC. We've been organizing a lot of the protests happening across uh, North America, uh, including one of the largest foreign policy related protests in DC on Palestine uh, on Nakba Day. Uh, I'm really happy to be here with you, um, especially to talk to Lebanese, to, to Lebanese community. My grandmother was a Palestinian refugee in Saida, and I went to AUB uh, for my bachelor's. So it's really great to be here. All right. Well, we're we're super excited to have you as well. Uh, very quickly, we are going to go through sort of an abbreviated version of the, the Lebanon news this week uh, so that we can get quickly to our main topic today. So let's just run through this, Nizar. Yeah. Uh, uh, first off, COVID report. We're actually doing good. Good news for once, or at least not bad news in this area. So we, we've seen the numbers, the case numbers drop dramatically since the last time we came to you, sort of like low hundreds testing positive each day. ICU numbers are down to about 250 or a little bit below uh, today when we're recording this on Saturday. Um, deaths are down significantly as well, uh, down to the single digits, uh, at least on some days, which is good. Yeah. Uh, now the question, of course, happen is, you know, what happens when we're opening back up? Um, and, and this is a sort of a tricky thing. Are people going to become complacent now? What's going to happen, especially with sort of the low vaccination rates? There have only been about 660,000 vaccines administered so far and just uh, about 220,000 people fully vaccinated in the country. So that is still a big, big concern. Um, but overall picture finally a little bit of good news but don't get complacent right yeah exactly uh, but like it's it's for once now uh, corona is not the main thing happening exactly. in anymore it's exactly just, we, we might have to stop putting it at the very top of the podcast at some Maybe. point yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let, let's hope let's hope for that uh, all right Coming back to real Lebanese news, uh, we have a, a new scandal. This time, um, it's the foreign minister in the uh, resigned government, Sherbil Wahbi, uh, who was on a talk show with a Saudi political analyst, Salman Ansari. And uh, he made, after you know some heated exchanges in the debate, he made uh, comments about uh, Ansari being uh, someone from a Bedouin background, implying that he's from an inferior cultural background. And uh, he blamed Gulf countries for the rise of extremist groups in the region. So this discourse is not usually something that you hear from a foreign minister in Lebanon. It had a huge backlash from uh, the Saudis, but mostly from the Lebanese political establishment. The next day, 
was really like um, surreal. Uh, every major politician almost uh, for, um, representing a political party or movement that is not an enemy of Saudi Arabia was uh, visiting the Saudi ambassador in Beirut. Uh, people like, you know, uh, the heads of religious authorities as well as uh, major, major politicians and in, 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 in across the spectrum. And and uh, Wehbi, who is President Aoun's guy, Gibran Basile's guy, right, with the FBM, I mean, the president immediately disavowed what he said, said, oh, no, he was speaking in a personal capacity. He resigned the very next day. Um, and I mean, this is deeply, deeply embarrassing to the FPM. First off, since this is a senior politician who's supposed to be a diplomat uh, saying this stuff using, you know, racist terminology and stuff. And then also to Gibran Basile, I think specifically, you know, with his presidential ambitions, you know, if you want to become president in Lebanon, it helps if you have Saudi Arabia on board. It helps if you have like all of the regional powers on board. And if this is the kind of person that Gibran Basile likes to appoint to high positions, are the Saudis really going to trust him? I mean, the the relationship was never good, right? Yeah. Uh, and but this is a, a big setback uh, as well for him. And the the number of visits the next day to the Saudi ambassador just shows and reminds us that Saudi Arabia actually has leverage in Lebanon and uh, and never isn't, hasn't yet become like an irrelevant player otherwise you wouldn't see all of these very uh, you know top level politicians uh, going there. And so now we have a new acting for caretaker foreign minister Zena Akar who is the caretaker defense minister as well as deputy prime minister so now she's got a third role uh <laughs> to to take on within this you know resigned cabinet uh and speaking of a resigned cabinet when will the next cabinet actually be formed well as of today uh that we are recording this on saturday may the 22nd uh it's been seven months exactly since Saad hariri was uh designated to form government we're still no nowhere close to that actually happening, but there was some movement this week, sort of a spat uh, between the Aoun camp and the Hariri camp uh, yet again. And and I think I find the timing of this actually a little bit interesting because it was right after Wahbe that this whole scandal happened. That that happened uh, Monday night and then Tuesday and then Tuesday afternoon. President Aoun sent a message to Parliament, an official letter, uh, <laughs> saying uh, Hariri has been unable to form a government. I'd like you guys to meet and talk about this. Uh, and so uh, Parliament convened uh, on Friday, read the letter, put off discussion until today, Saturday, they met again. And it was really just sort of a, a lackluster session, about an hour and a half long. You had speeches from various people, mostly, uh, I mean, it led up to Basile's speech. Basile is also an MP from Batroun. Uh, his speech, which lasted, you know, almost half an hour, and followed by Hariri, responding uh and his and hariri's speech was almost as long as basile so it was but but also within all of these speeches nobody really said anything new it was really just the same sort of accusations we've seen going back and forth you know or you're, you're causing the obstruction no you are uh, we're we just want this you know this uh and and at the end of the day what happened parliament affirmed hariri as the prime minister designate like affirmed that he needs to form a government with the agreement of the president in line with the constitution. So, I mean, really, it was much ado about nothing. It's literally nothing new, like uh, yeah. just some theatrics. Yeah, absolutely.
So this is at the level of, you know, the political institution, the parliament and the cabinet. Uh, on the ground, we saw uh, some interesting developments in the last uh, uh, week and uh, or a couple of weeks. Uh, we'll talk about the Palestine solidarity events that happened and marches later in the discussion. But and one of those things is that we had the uh, the expat vote for the uh, Syrian presidential elections. And uh, as usual, there was mobilization among uh, Syrian refugees in Lebanon, especially in support of uh, of Bashar al-Assad, you know, convoys and all of that going to the stations to vote. And, uh, and allegations of coercion among people who didn't want to go. Etc. Yeah, yeah, it's 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 much more nuanced than it seems. Uh, uh, you know, usually intelligence, Syrian intelligence is involved. Local actors allied with the Syrian regime are also also involved in like pressuring, pressurizing these uh, refugees to to get on the bus and go to to that destination to vote for Bashar al-Assad. So it's not like any organic uh, event at all. Uh, but uh, this time, this year, it um, provoked uh, uh, some people, especially from uh, the Lebanese forces background. And uh, we had a few dozens of Lebanese forces youth uh, go down to the streets and try to trying to block the buses, uh, in some cases attacking some of the cars and convoys. So it was a quite, a, quite an intense scene. And um, the interesting thing about it is that you know, on one hand, it was self-evident that, you know, they are exercising a democratic rights as as uh, as uh, Syrian citizens trying to, uh, you know, advocate for a certain uh, political leader. On the other hand, this person is considered a war criminal uh, uh, by a lot of people in Lebanon and is very provocative at this point to kind of renew allegiance to Bashar al-Assad with everything that's happening and people um, linking, uh, investigative journalists linking the port explosion to the Syrian regime and uh, all of the new developments that have kind of renewed the anger against the Syrian regime, uh, but obviously the violence should have been, you know, like kind of a, a filter, uh, and uh, you would expect people to say no, you know, no to this violence. And uh, and the, the reality was that there was a lot of polarization about it. Uh, Christian parties uh, mostly not stood behind the LF people, but kind of, you know, justified it in a way by saying no, the Syrian uh, uh, voters were too provocative in their actions by chanting things for Bashar al-Assad and all of that, and they shouldn't be allowed to be to be doing uh, this in Lebanon. Many people like, you know, Jumana Haddad, the feminist uh, figure who created a human rights center under his own name, her own name, made a statement about how they should go back to their country and uh, to be able to exercise this right. So it was a very interesting polarizing moment. And parties like Kata'ab, which have been kind of resituating themselves in the opposition, were also very hesitant to condemn or say anything against uh, the violence that happened. Yeah, I've I've got I I could talk about this for probably ten minutes uh, by <laughs> itself. I, I I won't do that though because uh, we we want to move on. Suffice it to say though, like for for a lot of these parties, they're sort of placed between if they want to be popular. They have to say one thing if they want to uh, actually lead on the issue, if they want to actually, you know, stand up for freedom of expression or whatever. It's kind of tricky to do mm -hmm. uh, for them. Mm -hmm. I, I I think that was quite uh, informative. Um, and with that, I'll I'll wrap up so that we can actually move to uh, our big topic this week, which is uh, Palestine. What. Uh, has been going on there over the past uh, few weeks. And Laura, you're uh, you're going to be able to hopefully sort of walk us through some of this stuff, what's been happening, the causes behind it, um, and, and perhaps what we uh, can expect out of all of this. Especially that Laura was actually one of the 
early organ online organizers around Sheikh Jarrah, so one of the first people or early people to to be uh, launching this online campaign, which got a lot of traction worldwide. So yeah, Laura, tell us how things happened, how things developed in the early moments, which most of us don't know about. Of course. So I actually met um, Hamad Al-Kurd, uh, if uh, folks know him. Um, he's a resident of Sheikh Jarrah. His family is, is one of the four families uh, under threat of forced expulsion from their homes in Jerusalem. I met him end of March. I was interviewing him uh, for an article. Uh, and I realized that no one is talking about this. How can I help you? Uh, and I got in touch with a, with some organizations in Palestine, like the Palestine Institute for Public Diplomacy and organizations in the U.S. who were trying to work around writing and sending a petition to the State Department uh, to, to demand an end to the expulsion. Now, this didn't start in March. This, this started in 1972. Muhammad, when he was 11 years old in 2009, was talking about his family's expulsion the same way he is talking about it now at 22, 23. What occurred is after families were uh, forced out of their homes in the Nakba in 1948, they were resettled on uh, Palestinian land in Jerusalem, uh, which was administered by the Jordanian government. They were given homes by the UNRWA. They were given ownership documents after three years of being on the land um, by the Jordanian government. And then 1960, uh, 1967 happened, the next cell war, Jordan no longer had jurisdiction. And that's when uh, Israeli settler organizations began mobilizing and saying, hey, we want this land. It belongs uh, to the Jewish people. It started in 1972. They kicked out more than 43 Palestinians from their homes in 2002. They kicked more Palestinians in 2008. In 2009, settler organizations took over half of Muhammad al-Qud's house, burning the crib of his baby sister, uh, throwing a TV at his grandmother who had to go to the hospital and she passed away recently, uh, and took over half his house. And since then, these seller organizations have been constantly suing uh, these families who are more than 550 residents in the Sheikh Jarrah neighborhood in Israeli courts who legally have no jurisdiction over what you know, the international community calls East Jerusalem. So from one hand, the court has no jurisdiction, has no right to, to, to give an opinion or a ruling. And from the other hand, nobody's, nobody's actually defending these families. They're having to do it by themselves. They're calling the media by themselves. They're going to the streets by themselves. They're organizing by themselves. Now, why, the, why does the world know about this right now? Because on May 2nd, uh, there was a hearing uh, in the Supreme Court, of, uh, the Israeli Supreme Court. It was an appeal that the families had submitted because their appeal in the Jerusalem court was rejected. So they went to the Supreme Court, said, hey, here are documents that prove that we, are, we live here. People went to the Ottoman archives and dug up documents showing Palestinian ownership. Uh, the Jordanian government, even though they were super, super late, eventually provided copies of ownership documents as well. The Supreme Court did not want to look at these. And what they did instead, they took documents from the Israeli seller organizations without verification and just took them all. This is fact. That's it. Now, because of the online campaign, because people were mobilizing, uh, sharing the hashtag Save Sheikh Jarrah, Anqidu Hay Sheikh Jarrah, people were on Clubhouse with hundreds and hundreds of people just talking about Sheikh Jarrah, Twitter, Facebook, etc., 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 there was media attention. So because of the media attention, the Supreme Court decided, okay, I'm not going to make a ruling right now. I'm going to give you until May 6th, figure out an agreement with the seller organizations. 
the settler organization's proposal was you pay rent to us and when uh, your head of household passes away, we might, you know, sue you again and take over your home. Obviously, the families rejected that. And then they postponed the ruling again to May 10. Now, why was that significant? That was significant because on May 10, settler, uh, settler groups and far-right groups in Israel called for a march uh, on the route towards Al-Aqsa Mosque. Now, let's keep in mind, we were still in Ramadan. There were worshippers every day at Al-Aqsa. People are fasting. The families were being harassed while they were fasting as well. Um, it is a holy month. So they called for a march and called for a death to Arabs, as usual. Uh, we've seen this reported on at end of April when they had a different march uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, and it's not the first time they, they chant death to Arabs or have these kinds of marches. If you go to the Institute for Palestine Studies chronology articles, you can see that in 1986, in 1996, in 2006, in 2012, there, there are so many instances of just hatred towards Palestinians who are just living in their homes trying to survive. Um, so when that happened, the court decided, and Netanyahu and Gantz actually, they interfered um, and decided, okay, we are going to postpone the ruling for 30 days because of the quote-unquote tensions taking place in the city. Now that's when everything just, uh, <laughs> is everything that you see right now took place. Soldiers attacked worshippers at Al-Aqsa Mosque. They blocked far-right groups from entering so that they can attack the worshippers. We've seen grenades being thrown inside the mosque. We've seen grenades being thrown at, med at medics. More than 600 people were injured. Um, the difference this time was that we weren't just watching this happen on Al Jazeera or, I don't know, other, other, uh, other cable networks. We've been, we saw this live on Instagram of Palestinians who were at the mosque, of Palestinians who are in Sheikh Jarrah, filming the moment that they are beaten, filming the moment that they are arrested, filming the moment that they are blinded uh, by rubber bullets. So that had a very significant effect on how the online and offline campaigns exploded. We have never before seen up close First, uh, first-hand witness accounts of how Israel treats Palestinians. It felt like we were there in some moments. And what occurred as well was that the families in Sheikh Jarrah told Palestinians in the diaspora, Arabs in the diaspora, allies in the diaspora, the fight is online. You need to amplify our voices. You need to share the videos that we are giving you. No one is reporting about this. The only way the world will know about the attacks at Al-Aqsa, about the assaults in Sheikh Jarrah, is if you show it to them. So that took place. We've all seen that. That happened. And people continuously demanded help. Please help us. They're forcing us out of our homes. Please help us. They're attacking us in the mosque. Nobody said anything. There was no media attention, international media attention on this. There were no statements by world leaders on this. The statements that came out were after bombings went off uh, in Gaza. Israel, as usual, took this as a PR opportunity to say, oh, look, we are being attacked by terrorists. Look, we're being attacked by terrorists. Help us, help us. And everybody rushed to their aid. We stand with, with Israel, with Israel's right to self-defense. We've seen a statement by uh, Ned Price, a spokesperson of the State Department in D.C., uh, being asked multiple times by an AP journalist and by an Al-Quds News journalist, do you condemn the killing of children? Do you condemn the killing of children? And he would not do that. And he would not admit that Palestinians have a right to self-defense. And he would say that any state has a right to self-defense, which is very surprising to me because the U.S. always talks 
about uh, uh, state violence uh, during uh, the Arab Spring, whether it was Egypt or Syria. So why are they now making a, a differentiation? When has state violence ever uh, been been acceptable uh, against uh, civilians, knowing that Israel is an occupying state for 73 years? Uh, a lot of journalists who speak to Palestinians in America always, and you can see it on CNN, they always say, oh, please don't take us back decades and decades ago. Just tell us what happened. Well, no, I'm going to take you back decades and decades ago because this never stopped. When, when more than 700,000 Palestinians were expelled from their homes in 1948, they became refugees and the killings, the beatings, the lynching, the, the expulsion in their homes in Haifa, Lod, in, in the West Bank, Settlement expansions in Gaza, the siege for 15 years, that never stopped. But people weren't talking about it. Um, I hope that gives you sort of a brief of why we saw uh, what the news media is calling a flare-up when it is really an attack, a targeted attack on, on Palestinians in Gaza because of what's happening in Jerusalem and Sheikh Jarrah. As of today, more than 240 civilians uh, have died in Gaza. They are still uh, uh, they are still finding bodies under the rubble, uh, and that included 66 children. You know, 14 year old Lina Isa, one year old Muhammad Al Attar, uh, 11 year old Ibrahim Al Masri was playing on his bike during Eid after taking money from his father and being so happy about it. And 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 I was on a um, I'm sorry if I'm taking so much time, but I was on a interview with a radio station in D.C. Uh, the interviewer was extremely aggressive, as usual. They bring on people just to ask them what they think about terrorism and if they support violence. And he had previously ho hosted um, an IOF uh, spokesperson, uh, an Israeli military spokesperson who explained to listeners that, oh, it's okay. We, we do something called knocking on the roof where we, you know, we, we alert them that we are going to bomb them. So we give them five minutes to leave the house. And I had to explain to the journalist how absurd that sounds, that if I heard a small rocket warning on my roof as an adult, I would be horrified scrambling to figure out who, what to do, how can I leave, how can I survive. Imagine how that is for children. For Ibrahim al-Masri and his brother, they weren't in a building, they were in the middle of the street. Israel not only lies and kills, they try to justify the murder of children. How horrible is that? And, and everybody, as you say, is seeing this sort of like in real time, you know, on Instagram, on social media somewhere. And, and it's really strange to me, you know, to see the juxtaposition of images uh, coming out, a, a lot of them from Gaza, but also uh, from the Al-Aqsa compound um, and from, uh, you know, towns like Lid. You see all of that, these horrifying videos, and then... Uh, you look and see, you mentioned, you know, Ned Price, uh, that sort of infamous, infamous press dealing that he had. Uh, I, I read the readout of that. And, and it really is just very striking about how, you know, when he's asked to condemn these images that everyone is seeing, you know, he's unable to do that. And he falls back to this line, Israel's right to defend itself, which, I mean, really, at least to me, just wears thinner and thinner every time they use it, especially given what we can see with our own two eyes on social media of what's going on there. Yeah, I mean, and uh, I mean, we, let's talk about the impact of the of, of what's happening in, in just a bit, because obviously this was different from uh, wars we've seen before or conflicts we've seen before in terms of international solidarity, how Western liberals look at it, a lot of things. Let's talk about it in a second. But 
what's fascinating about this moment is not only that it there was a conflict and people took positions it's that there was some sort of uprising like a, 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 a serious nationwide uprising in historic palestine um, including in, in inside 48 uh, uh, in the west bank uh, and there was a v- very different tools of resistance being used you know in some areas there was mostly non-violent resistance with some rocks being thrown uh, etc and other areas there was like serious confrontations between young men for example in lid and uh, very militarized uh, police presence uh, israeli police presence and israeli army troops in in gaza obviously being completely disconnected from the rest of palestine uh, the only resistance tool was rockets uh, which were fired in extensive numbers and 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 also in a way that kind of uh, broke through uh, the 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 iron dome the israeli uh, anti rocket missile defense system so i want to talk about this uprising itself you know as a social phenomenon in palestine and uh, putting it in the uh, context of what has been happening in Palestine in the last, uh, you know, decade uh, or so, in the regional context of many Arab states normalizing relations with Israel, I'm just going to ask you, Laura, uh, you as a uh, as a member of Palestinian diaspora, uh, someone who's committed to this uh, to the to Palestinian liberation cause, what's special about this mo- this moment specifically to you? You know, Nizar, this feels different. Um, any Palestinian you ask that has been on this for the past few weeks, they tell you something is different. Like, we actually feel that liberation is near. And I hope it is. The difference in this surprising is, and what people are calling it uh, a unity intifada is that Palestinians from all walks of life, from every every city in all of Palestine, have united together to, to, to push the same campaigns the same protests in solidarity with people, whether it was people in Nablus standing up with people in Haifa, people in Haifa standing up with people in Jerusalem, or people in Jerusalem standing up with people uh, in, in Gaza. It is different. It is different. And I think we do owe it a little bit to um, the, 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 the social media attention that has been pushed in collaboration with people in Palestine. Uh, there are groups in Haifa who created a drive where they put footage of everything that has been happening to them. The marking of doors to differentiate who, who, is, who is a Palestinian living in this apartment and who isn't. And then three hours later, Israeli police barge in and start beating the Palestinians. I let the analogy speak for itself. I'm not going to even say what that looks like. Um, footage of a grenade being thro- thrown at the face of a, of a Palestinian in Akka, just standing by his motorcycle, not doing anything. This hasn't been shown online. But what has been done is that Palestinians in Haifa, as an example, put this, put this footage in a drive, contacted Palestinians in the diaspora and said, hey, push this out. They are killing us. Palestinians in the diaspora took it upon themselves with their large followings, with their networks, with their connections, with their institutions that are already built abroad for Palestine, and they started pushing out. Look what they are doing to us. The amount of online uh, chatter around Palestine was so big, it was impossible for people to ignore. It was impossible for people to ignore. We began having not only media personnel, but regular Americans just Talk about Israel and Palestine in the street. I have never heard that before. Walking down the street, have, hearing someone talk about Jerusalem. It has never, I've never happened to me before. I'm, I'm always wary about even saying the word Palestine because of 
some discrimination I have faced in, in, when I moved to the, to America. So that is different. It is different. People are talking about us. They're realizing that they, they are no, no longer believing Israeli talking points. To the extent that there was so much backlash towards the New York Times that today they, they published an article that talks about the, the reality of the occupation. That, that never happens. We're always yelling at the New York Times to stop, stop acting as a PR tool for the Israeli government. So I, I, re- I, am, I am extremely hopeful. I'm extremely hopeful. At the same time, I'm a little bit worried. Because of the ceasefire that has been announced, um, uh, I believe two days ago, you know, we keep telling people this ceasefire means nothing. Historically, every time a ceasefire has been called uh, uh, between Israel uh, and Gaza, Israel has continuously violated their ceasefire. Uh, in my personal opinion, this is a ceasefire for the media to stop reporting about this, for politicians to stop talking about this. And we saw a day later, after the ceasefire was announced, soldiers went in and started attacking uh, worshippers of the Al-Aqsa Mosque again. Uh, Sheikh Jarrah is still surrounded by barricades and soldiers who are IDing them, who are beating them, who are attacking them. Last week, we saw a soldier shoot a rubber bullet at Jana Al-Kiswani, who is a 15-year-old resident of Sheikh Jarrah, who now has a broken spine and bruised lungs, and inshallah, inshallah, not paralyzed. I really hope so. One thing I will mention uh, for the listeners is that on May 18, there was a call for a general strike. And I believe in Lebanon as well. Uh, people went out and protested. I've seen videos. It was, it was beautiful. All around the world, there were protests and solidarity with a general strike across historic Palestine. That has never happened before. But all Palestinians and all Palestine standing together and deciding today we are not working. We're going to the street. We're going to chant. We're going to call for our freedom. Why is it significant? Because 50% of the construction industry and 50% of the pharmacy industry inside 48, controlled by Israel, are Palestinian workers. So when, when more than 60,000 Palestinian workers in the construction industry went on strike on Tuesday and joined other Palestinians uh, in protest, the, the industry in Israel lost millions of dollars. So we saw that as one example. Now imagine if we continue this momentum, go on strike every day in Palestine, they will lose so much money. They depend on Palestinians for their own daily lives, the functioning of their own daily lives. We will exert so much pressure on them that we'll probably achieve something eventually. Um, so this is, this is why it is different, because of the unity, because Palestinians who, who are leftist and who are on different, uh, different points of the political spectrum didn't care and just came together and said, you know what, we're going to stand together and we're going to try to fight uh, the occupation as one rather than as a divide, divided people. And this is uh, also very significant uh, from my perspective, because for once, the agency was uh, really in the hands of Palestinians. Um, when we look at the previous, um, I don't know, at least, at least the last uh, two decades since I've been aware of what's happening in, in Palestine, I've seen more and more this kind of direction we're going into where Palestinians are less and less powerful or have less and less leverage or um, agency in the conflict that is that's really just their own. Obviously, it's a it's a conflict where a lot of people are um, are invested in one way or another, but it's a Palestinian liberation uh, struggle at the end. And still, it didn't seem that uh, Palestinian Palestinians as a collective 
you know, as a community or uh, as a society, basically, had strong political agency in fighting occupation, especially after being so fragmented with different interests as well. A lot of Palestinians rely on Israeli companies and Israeli, uh, you know, employment for their livelihoods. I once heard someone or uh, read a tweet, actually, someone saying, you know, the only reason Israel doesn't kill all Palestinians, especially all Palestinian young men who might be a threat to it, is that, uh, you know, Israel needs uh, their labor. And this is a very, you know, interesting thing that no one really talks about, which is uh, how Israel not only excludes and fragments Palestinian society, but also maintains uh, a certain poor, young section of this population to be always exploiting for for uh, for profit. But what I wanted to kind of ask you, did you feel this time that whatever foreign governments would say, it's it's kind of the Palestinians time? Was this um, was this just a, and it, this was my perspective that this agency kind of came back to the Palestinians. Was this also uh, yours? Yes. So, um, <laughs> you know, in America, at least what what happened was uh, we saw some representatives leading letters uh, to the State Department, and we saw them speak on the House floor and for the first time call Israel an apartheid state. I don't think that has ever happened on the House floor in mm-hmm. Congress in the U.S. Um, the fact that Representative uh, uh, Pocan, Representative Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, Bernie Sanders, uh, um, Mary Newman, et cetera, et cetera, went out publicly in support of Palestinians and, and leading one of the bills that is trying to halt uh, the sale of weapons, more than $735 million of weapons to Israel uh, by the Biden administration, they cannot go back from that. So even if, if the attention on this dies down internationally, it is on the record that these representatives who have power have came out in support of Palestine without using any Israeli talking points of saying, oh, we believe in this, but also this, but rather they just went straight ahead. This is an apartheid state. Apartheid states aren't democracies, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I am really looking forward to see what happens next, at least in the United States, when politicians have come out like that. Um, The other thing is, you know, I do hope that the momentum does not die down at all. You mentioned that they do depend on Palestinian uh, labor. Um, If people are interested, you know, if some people listening here are readers, there's a book in Arabic, English and Italian as well by Ibtisam Barakat. She is a Palestinian novelist. It's called Sifr al-Iqtifa or The Book of Disappearance. And it's basically a fictional um, story about Palestinians disappearing from Palestine all of a sudden. And any Palestinian refugee who's trying to cross the border immediately vanishes. And how the Israeli society uh, 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 loses its mind realizing that they cannot function without Palestinians. Uh, How they thought it was a strike in the beginning and then realized that it's just a strange occurrence. Um, as if as if the land has taken back its its people, as if it had it had absorbed them. This is I remembered re- I remembered this book when the strike happened because I re- because I realized you know I was reading fiction and it had and the fiction had so much impact on the fictional Israeli community that lost its mind and couldn't function anymore because of the disappearance of Palestinians. And we did this in one day. Let's keep moving. Let's keep doing it. I've got a dumb question, but it's a question that I think some people who maybe aren't so familiar with the issue might have, uh, if you don't mind. And that is, you you spoke earlier about uh, Palestine liberation, and you're talking about keeping up the momentum. What is this working towards? 
what what do you what do you think first off is there agreement amongst palestinians what this looks like in the like overall long term and secondly what do you think what are the sort of like first steps achievable gains that now that you know a month ago didn't seem possible but now seem possible or even end goal you know or even end yeah. goal because this kind of brought back uh, the question of you know is the two state solution even a thing anymore is it exactly. you know which a lot of people are asking very it's a very valid question inside and outside the palestine within all of these exactly. communities that we're talking about I hear that question. It's an important question. You're trying to entrap me as well. <laughs> but, uh, um, no, I mean, me, this is, yeah, this yeah, is, no, I, <laughs> there's I, a I lot agree. of diversity already on this question. So yeah, it's whatever I agree you with say. you. So because this sort of this unity happened uh, all of a sudden, uh, I really don't know how to answer what the end goal is in terms of like official conversations, etc. Because I really I don't know if people sat down and talked about this. What I do know, however, is that we are all demanding for one thing. The liberation of Palestine includes uh, the boycott, divestment, and sanction of all Israeli products, of Israeli uh, academia, of Israeli cultural uh, uh, events, uh, of Israeli uh, well, whatever you want. <laughs> That's where what, that is something that we have sort of put front and center as something that we are calling for uh, when it includes the liberation of Palestine to put pressure on Israel. The other thing we are also calling for is Palestinian rights, just human, just basic human rights for Palestinians who live in 48, who are treated like second-class citizens, who are spat at, whose, whose businesses are being destroyed, whose homes are being invaded. Palestinian rights for those in Jerusalem. Stop the expulsion of Palestinians in Jerusalem. Stop expanding illegal settlements into the West Bank. And then in Gaza, lift the blockade. You know, like we're starting with these tangible, tangible uh, asks of things that are currently, currently impacting the lives of Palestinians in historic Palestine. Push these aside. Treat Israel the same way you are treating Venezuela and Syria and Cuba and North Korea and all these countries that you, you're saying that they're abusing human, they're abusing human rights and you're putting sanctions on them. Why is Israel the exception? Sanction Israel, lift the blockade, stop the expulsion, stop settlement expansions, give equal rights to Palestinians. When that takes place, when we, when we are no longer thinking about our survival, whether we're going to die today, whether we're going to be attacked today, that we can sit down and have a conversation within ourselves, organized within ourselves, and figure out, okay, what is the next step now? We can take a, a small breather now that the world is, is, is giving us uh, some justice back. But that's what I think. That's what I think. Uh, I personally yeah. believe in, in, in these little asks first. Uh, and I don't think they're little, but you know, these asks first. Yeah, it's, I mean, uh, I, I think this is really a very uh, sensitive um, topic because when you say, you know, grant Palestinians equal rights, you're already, in a way, addressing the Israeli authorities, right? Because Israeli authorities are the ones discriminating, and Israeli society, obviously, it's not only the laws and policies, but it's Israel that's discriminating against Palestinians. So if Israel is to grant Palestinians equal rights, to me, it sounds like this this contradicts the original Arab uh, or uh, yani, Arab, I say Arab because we're used to it as, as Arabs in general, but uh, original Palestinian revolution discourse, which says we need to liberate, liberate Palestine from from uh, river to sea. And I'm not against I'm not like making any normative claims here. I'm just saying that 
let's let's move to Lebanon for a second, okay? So this is happening in Palestine. What did we see in Lebanon? We saw some reactions. Mostly, the best reactions are solidarity. Mostly solidarity. This was what what we overwhelmingly saw in the last week or two. Uh, many marches. Uh, there were two marches happening with two days apart, and each of them had over a thousand people or something. It was it was really nice. Um, to see this at the same time it's very unclear to most people around me just my friends you know people who, who discuss politics with me always are I'll always ask me um you know what are we hoping for in in palestine and um there's a political group the new political party in lebanon uh, called citizens in a state which released a statement saying you know the solution for palestine is one civil state in all over historic palestine and it was it had a lot of backlash because it's exactly the same discourse they use for for lebanon it seemed like they were projecting and they they you know they were very comfortable telling palestinians what to do whereby they would never do that to syrians or any other uh, arab population there was a lot of backlash but the main point is that they put on the table this question of you know what is the palestinian political project and i'm not trying to be here like uh, kind of uh, putting you in a, in a like pressuring or anything about like the fact that palestinians don't have a common political project in my opinion the history uh, like things that happened in in the last 30 40 years or 70 years at, uh, even uh, made sure that Palestinians cannot remain uh, one political society. And it's not the fault of Palestinians at all, in my opinion. But what I'm asking is, do you think we need this one common political project uh, across the different areas of historic Palestine in order for the solida- solidarity and for foreign policy of, 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 of other, other governments to be more productive or more effective? Thank you, Nizad. Uh, just to be clear first, I, I do not recognize the state of Israel. Uh, a free Palestine to me is a free Palestine from the river to the sea. Uh, when I talk about the rights of Palestinians, I talk about it from the perspective of the international community. Israel, Israel is an occupying state under the Geneva Convention. It is required. It is required to provide rights, basic rights, to the people it occupies. Right now, Israel denies them basic rights. Uh, it oppresses them systematically. Uh, it has a military that 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 terrorizes them. Uh, and subjects Palestinians to racist laws just because they're Palestinian. So when I say provide Palestinians with, 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 with their equal rights, I mean basic rights as an occupying power under international law. So that's one. The other thing is, you know, a lot of people do ask about division in Palestinian society, but I think what we saw on Tuesday is proof that we can come together for the benefit of our land and our people. And I know that maybe you're thinking about the Palestinian Authority, and the parties that exist in Palestine. You know, the Palestinian Authority in itself is corrupt. Nobody's saying we're gonna follow the Palestinian Authority with what they want. They're corrupt. Mahmoud Abbas has been president for 15, 16 years. He, he represents a very irrational leadership that is honestly shameful for us to be represented by someone uh, who is embarrassing on the, on the international sphere. From one hand, from the other hand, their corruption is so deep that they are still, <laughs> the, the Gaza airport doesn't exist anymore, but money still goes to Gaza airport workers, which don't work, which don't exist. Like that, that, that whole institution does not exist. So where is the money going? To the other extent, in Bangladesh, the embassy of the, the Palestinian authorities asking for donations, taking, taking advantage of the situation in Gaza and asking for donations to the embassy, which we all know is not going to go to Gaza because the PA doesn't even have access to Gaza because of the blockade. For me, liberation is a liberation of the people. 
and the people have to do uh, the work and they are doing the work. And because the people of, is united, our fight is people against occupier, occupied against occupier. I know, I know there's a lot of politics that go in Palestine with all the divisions, but I really think we need to look at this moment, what has been happening for the past few weeks, as a moment of hope, showing Palestinians in the diaspora and refugee camps and uh, inside Palestine just come as one and not argue about what should or shouldn't be done. I hope that answers the question. Yeah, I mean, uh, just to be clear, Laura, I was um, I was asking this because we witnessed a Lebanese uprising a year and a half ago. And uh, the moment itself was absolutely fascinating how people came together from across the country, across sectarian lines, across political affiliations. They denounced the whole elect, uh, estab- political establishment in Lebanon. There was class anger that we didn't see before against the ruling, you know, financial elite. There was all sorts of things that, you know, brought so much hope and euphoria to the people in Lebanon, uh, including myself. And uh, a few, you know, a few months later with the lower momentum, uh, the question became more and more about the politics and less about the moment itself. And maybe from this background is where I'm asking uh, my question, uh, because at some point people got to say, OK, um, so we need to have a common agenda. And uh, I think you outlined a very solid common agenda, which is to resist occupation and uh, demand um, and force Israel to be at least uh, the the occupying power that it should be under international law. This is a very solid uh, short term agenda. But I think in terms of political imagination and political agenda in general, uh, there is a there's a there's the, this big question the elephant in the room which is what do Palestinians want and this is what I was trying to to basically ask about. Thank you, Nizar. I'm I'm not gonna pretend to know. I really don't know. I I honestly don't know. Beyond the asks I provided, the liberation of Palestine, lifting the blockade, stopping the expulsion, sort of trying to protect the people that are that are currently under stress te- and, and and under attack. That is something that I as Laura is sort of you know, moving towards. What comes next? I don't know. Yeah. And it's just uh, just a m- making a general comment here. People say it's a very complicated conflict. I don't think so. Uh, maybe the solution, maybe the, the liberation itself and how it will happen is a complicated, is something that we can't clearly imagine now, but it's very, it's it's doable. You know, um, it, be it a one-state solution or a two-state solution, nothing is impossible at all. There are policies that can be enacted. There are changes in government and constitution and and, and social structures that can happen much quicker than they have been happening uh, in the past few decades. So, uh, you know, I'm not trying to kind of be uh, the, play the, the pessimistic role here at all. Uh, it's, it's just that whatever the political agenda is, I think from now on, I'm more hopeful than ever that it can be achieved. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point that you make about just, you know, th- complicated things can actually be simpler than than you think, both in the future and in the past, you know, mm-hmm. and, and one of the, at least from my perspective, I see a lot of people around the world, and especially in the United States, where I'm from, they don't really know what's going on. And a lot of them don't really want to get involved because they don't really know too much. And then they're told it's really, really complicated. That is the narrative. Uh, But really, it does boil down to something quite simple, right? This is we're talking about a decades long project to ethnically cleanse Palestine. Yeah. And there's a whole lot of detail, a whole lot of granularity in that. But if you, you know, boil it all down, that is, it's, we, you know, it it can be explained very, very simply. And it comes down to this simple, simple fact. 
And once people start to understand that, then you can start seeing, uh, hopefully, a, a bit more uh, change and more support, uh, you know, globally. Speaking speaking of of this and just the ethnic cleansing aspect of this, you know, you you spoke earlier, Laura, about the um, about the uh, Nakba uh, and 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 the Naksa uh, uh, in '67, and and these things, you know, it's we have evidence right here in Lebanon of of that, and that th those are our neighbors in the camps and in other locations, Palestinian refugees, somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of two hundred thousand of them, living proof that this has happened. And they're still here. They're still waiting for justice. Um, and they still don't get any rights. I mean, <laughs> and they don't. Yeah, they don't. Let's just talk about here. that for a second. You know, actually, for me, uh, my 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 romantic partner is a Palestinian refugee. She's a third generation Palestinian refugee. Her grandparents uh, were kicked out of Palestine in '48. They came to Lebanon. Her parents were born here. She was uh, obviously born here, and still, as a Palestinian refugee, she's excluded from tons of occupations. She has many restrictions on even getting the Lebanese nationality, if even if she marries someone who's Lebanese, which is, you know, Lebanese nationality, the Lebanese passport isn't the best gift you can get, you know, <laughs> to say the least. And still, um, it's, they make it harder. They force Palestinian women to, like, uh, have kids, Lebanese kids, before they can get the nationality. They uh, Everything is hard. Literally everything you want to do on your personal life, career life, owning a house, forget it. Uh, owning land, etc. Like even uh, <laughs> land that is inherited from parents sometimes gets confiscated by these waqf people. You know, it's just like humiliation of a whole community of people that's happening in Lebanon uh, uh, since before the, the civil war. And instead of fixing it, uh, what we see now this is in terms of discourse from many political groups is the same old discourse about Palestinian camps being, you know, fertile grounds for terror and uh, whatever, like uh, areas outside of state control, etc. Instead of saying, instead of being honest and ethical and saying, you know, how are we forcing people to be living in such bad conditions without infrastructure, etc. And excluding them from society and restricting so many of their uh, civil rights. So, I think we have to go a long way and I'm just yeah. going to, you know, one one negative shout out here to Qatar because Qatar party is trying to reposition itself, as I was saying, as an opposition, as an anti-establishment movement in Lebanon. You know what the reaction to Palestine, to, to everything we're talking about was? The first few days, nothing, really. No mention of Palestine, no solidarity statement, nothing. And then <laughs> Qatar releases a statement because one or two rockets were fired from, uh, the, yeah, there were reports that they were fired from a Palestinian camp and they were like, oh my God, Palestinian camps and the weapons and the Palestinian militias and I don't know what, and nothing on Palestine. And then when the backlash happened against them, Sami Jmail calls up Mahmoud Abbas of all people who, you know, uh, <laughs> even in Lebanon, people realize Mahmoud Abbas doesn't represent Palestinians at all anymore, as Laura was saying earlier. Uh, he called Mahmoud Abbas up and said, yeah, we are uh, supportive of the two-state solution and of the Palestinian statehood, etc., which is, you know, like literally the worst thing you can do. And it, they did all of them. So... This is just, you know, a little a little critique to 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 parties because, you know, from now on, um, people in Lebanon are much more serious about uh, political new political parties and movements that try to kind of claim to be part of the Thawra or the uprising, etc. And you got to you got to change your, your political par paradigm to to be able to do that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, though, Laura, uh, before we wrap everything up, though, for for people in Lebanon specifically, you know, and these are just talked about some of the issues that uh, Palestinians here face, 
as well as the reactions from certain political parties that are pretending to be new and progressive and uh, and everything. But what can people in Lebanon do uh, and and Lebanese diaspora around the world on this issue to to help bring about you know greater justice? So um, there's a there's a couple of things. Uh, Nida, thank you for giving that. Uh, you know, explanation about Kataiba. When I saw that, I thought, oh my God, Infisam, like what's going on? <laughs> make it make a make a decision. Um it was hilarious to me. But when it comes to what Lebanese people can do, whether in Lebanon or the diaspora, you know, there's a lot to be done. Call out normalization when you see it. If you are in the diaspora yeah. and you have another passport, uh, you're a dual citizen in a in any of the countries like UK, US, Canada, call your representatives. Call them and tell them, hi, I am a constituent of your district. I want you to halt weapons to Israel. I want you to call out Israeli, uh, the Israeli occupation, the killing of children, etc. We have so much power as just if you have a dual citizen in these countries. Uh, the other thing you can do as well is, you know, keep up the online momentum. The reason why we are seeing what we are seeing uh, in the region, the reason why Instagram and Facebook are trying to censor us and block any hashtags related to Palestine is because people keep tweeting about it. They keep posting about it. They keep resharing what people in Palestine are seeing. So do that if that is the minimum, minimal thing you can do. And the last thing I would recommend is, you know, if you are capable to go beyond online and join organizations on the ground who are organizing to either protest, or, or defend the rights of Palestinians in, in Lebanon, for example, then do that. There are so many organizations in Lebanon that are trying to do that, and I think they need a lot of help and resources, and, and it would be helpful to start there if that is uh, something you're capable to do. Um, you know, you mentioned uh, refugees in, in, in Lebanon, and it's not, it's not enough they were expelled and shot at as they were fleeing their homes uh, in Palestine to also be treated um, with, with the humiliation like this in Lebanon or other countries in the region where you have to sort of keep your head down if you're a Palestinian because you're going to be scared if they're going to kick you out or they're going to attack your family or if something's going to happen to you. It's not fair. It's really not fair. You know, my, my family, and they, they fled uh, they fled Diafa, Haifa, Akka. And I remember a story from my great-grandfather who was carrying one of my aunts on his back as he was running from his home uh, and they went to Syria on foot. And his, my aunt uh, was, uh, had disabilities, so they were shooting at them and she got injured. Uh, she got hit, actually, and, and she fell to the ground and they had to keep running. They had to leave her behind and keep running because they were going to die. And they were all mourning the death of my aunt. And my, my great-grandfather came back to pick up um, my aunt's body so that they can bury, bury her with them wherever they resettle in Syria or in Lebanon. And he comes back and he sees her sitting amongst uh, uh, dead Palestinians in Yaffa. Uh, and she was a child. She was maybe 12 years old at the time. And she was laughing and smiling and telling him, Baba, Baba, you came. And that is heartbreaking. That is heartbreaking. You know, noting that 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 the Israeli occupation isn't just attacking who we are as Palestinians. They they are attacking our future. They are attacking our children. They have complete disregard to our humanity. And that is something everyone around the world should fight. And one last thing I would emphasize, you know, the Palestinian people are not free until everyone on this earth is free. And that includes 
black people and migrants and indigenous people and brown people and even in Lebanon, the people who are oppressed, they're not giving their rights uh, from all backgrounds, from all communities. You know, we are in this as a joint struggle. We are not fighting alone and we really do appreciate all the solidarity that the people in Lebanon have shown the Palestinians. Well, with this beautiful note, uh, first of all, I want to th- thank you so much, Laura, for uh, joining us on this episode. Uh, it was really yeah. informative and really inspiring. Yeah, no, this uh, this was a really good discussion. Thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate all of the uh, all of the information. I learned I learned a whole lot uh, uh, today. So so yeah, I I hope that hope we'll be able to maybe do a little bit more uh, coverage of Palestine in the future as well. Because uh, it is such an important uh, an important topic, um, and and we're tied to it geographically. Lebanon and Palestine are tied at the hip, uh, so or joined at the hip. So um, so hopefully we'll be coming back to it as well. Thank you so much, Laura, for for coming on the program. Thank you so much, Nizad and Ben. I really appreciate your time today. All right. Well, that's it for us this week. We will be back next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Laura Albast. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.